Good to see each one of you here today. I want to thank uh, a few folks here just as I begin. I want to thank, number one, Meredith Snowdy. Appreciate all the work she does. Great to get a chance. If any of you haven't gotten to see her in person yet, uh, but just gotten to see the things that she's involved in, she keeps so much uh, going around here. So for both on the missions and the communication side, so thankful for her. Uh, and uh, just want to say thank you as well to the, the worship team uh, for Parker and the others for just setting up a time of speaking so well. Come magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together and forever. I was reminded this morning in the 830 service of the words of Psalm 23, as, uh, as Parker read from Psalm 34. Uh, of course, I also thought of that great line that many of us remember, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And uh, the, the passage that was read before we just sang gave great testimony to the fact that the Lord takes care of his children, that he provides for each one of us. And yet, even in that, we see the greatest truth of all is that because the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want because he's given us everything and the ultimate need of our hearts, and that is himself. And so Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so it's a blessing uh, for us to be able to realize that in worship, even as we come to the passage this morning. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, where we have been for a few weeks now. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, and we're picking right up where we left off last week. We're going to begin with verse 12. So the book of Philippians uh, chapter 2, we begin with verse 12 as Paul writes to the church. And the passage we come to today, we begin uh, here in verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the goodness and worth of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that it is the Father, uh, you, yourself, who work in and through us for your good pleasure. And so, Lord, would you call us to your truth today? Would you remind us of not only the provision of a relationship with you, but the provision of the gospel itself? Uh, may you magnify Jesus in our eyes and hearts and minds to your glory uh, and to put our hands and feet, minds and hearts to your service and to grow in greater love and knowledge of you. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Now, as we read this passage, there might be several places in Philippians 2, 12 through 18 that you recognize this morning, but perhaps the phrase that jumps out at us the most when we come to this passage, perhaps the phrase that is often either the most understood or misunderstood or the most perplexing is a phrase that we see in verse uh, 12. And so I'm calling today, work out my salvation, question mark, or work out my salvation. What, what do I do with that? Well, how are we to take what the Apostle Paul says 
uh, that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And so I hope today that for each one of our hearts and minds, we get a chance to leave here perhaps refreshed with the truth, reminded of a truth we already knew, or otherwise to, uh, to understand it in an even clearer way this morning. What does Paul mean when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? About a hundred years ago or so, there was a famous piano player named Pedruski who was coming to the United States to perform a concert. Google said this is either a picture of him or a young Lloyd McSwain, one or the other. And so you can see, I think the best I can tell, this is Pedruski, a Polish piano player who was coming to play in an American auditorium. And in that day and age, that was the kind of thing that would pack an auditorium completely full. And so sure enough, Pedruski was coming to play and this American auditorium had been filled to the brim with people so excited to get to hear him uh, play that morning. There was a, a, a big, nice piano that had been brought there on the stage and tuned just right so that he could come out and everybody was so excited uh, to get to hear him perform that day. Now, one thing happened, as sometimes does happen, there was a mother in the audience who had brought her nine-year-old son to be able to hear Pedruski that day. And so as that nine-year-old son sat down and as everybody around him was, you know, talking and you know how parents do, they sort of get lost in conversation. And the mother didn't quite have as good a handle on her son as uh, she thought she had. And sure enough, when that little boy who had just started taking piano lessons looked up and saw the biggest and nicest piano on stage that he'd ever seen, and nobody was paying attention to him, and nobody was playing that piano, and he said, here's my chance. He felt the call, and he moved forward. And he came up to that piano, and he sat down, and virtually no one saw him there, but they did start to hear him because as he sat down at that piano and was able to look out and to have the entire audience listening, this is what he began to play. All of a sudden, the audience looked up and saw that somebody besides Pedruski was sitting at the piano, and sure enough, it was a nine-year-old little boy. And some of you moms in the room have may had this feeling before where you looked up and realized, oh no, that one belongs to me. <laughs> but he didn't care. He just continued, and he began to get into it a little bit more. You know how self-righteous everybody gets when it's not their own child. And so everybody began to call out from the audience, get that kid off that piano, get him out of there. And all of a sudden, that crowd of laughter that started just at the beginning moved to a much more serious refrain. And so as the boy was not quite sure how to take that, and as he continued playing chopsticks, not sure quite else, was quite else what to do, Pedruski, who was on the other side of the curtain, had heard what had been happening. So all of a sudden, while this little boy plinked out chopsticks, one of the greatest piano players of his time came and sat down next to him. All of a sudden, Pedruski, right beside him, put his arms around this little boy, and as he continued to tap out chopsticks bit by bit, Pedruski started to say a complex and or play a complex and beautiful counter melody to that little chopsticks. 
Now, before long, that little chopsticks was lost in what Petruski was playing. It had encapsulated and covered and masked everything that the little boy was doing. And yet, still, at the same time, both of them were playing. And so as the little boy continued to play, as his time got sharpened by being able to be playing with somebody who knew what they were doing, all of a sudden, Pedruski began to whisper something into the little boy's ear as he was not quite sure what to do. And Pedruski said this, keep playing. Don't quit. Don't stop. Keep playing. And the little boy's chopsticks went on. When they got done, the audience cheered and Pedruski began his concert. Because no longer had they heard the plinking effort of the little boy, they now had gotten to see a true concert piano player at work. What does it mean when we come to the passage in Philippians 2 that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, here's what it means. Number one is this this morning, we can work out because God works in. And so when we come to verse 12, we dare not take verse 12 without seeing verse 13. And so as we look at the context of all of that this morning, let's just sort of dive through the different pieces of that. But we can work out because God works in. Uh, as, you, uh, as you even take in the context of what Paul is saying, you have to recognize not only was, was Paul, whether he was aware of it or not, writing ultimately to the church through all of time, but he was writing specifically to the church in Philippi for a certain situation. How does he begin verse 12? Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul is writing to a church that he is not sure he is ever gonna see again. And so he says to them, whether I return to you or not, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Whether I'm ever able to come and lead, whether I'm ever able to come and speak, whether I'm ever able to come and to aid in the discipleship process and the evangelism that's going on in your own community, Paul's driving point is that you're going to have to practice your faith possibly without me. And so your faith, Paul says, can't depend on me. Your righteousness can't depend on me. Your belief can't depend on me. Your exercising of your faith can't depend on me either. And so the context is in the absence of Paul's immediate presence there, what it's going to mean for the church. And so Paul reminds them of sort of two truths that sometimes we see as opposing truths, but they're actually complementary truths. He says on the one hand, and so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling while then moving in verse 13 to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We sometimes get lost in the middle of that pendulum swing, or I guess we get lost on either side of it, the far ends. We sometimes spend a lot of time and effort in church environments talking about the balance of human obligation and divine sovereignty. What it means for the Lord to be in control, and yet at the same time for us to be called to obedience. And so even in this passage, we see the great truth that number one, if we're going to have a, a theology or a way of thinking to say, well, I'm just gonna let go and let God. That phrase is not necessarily wrong unless we think what I'm gonna do is be completely passive in my faith and take no role and do nothing and be nothing and grow, you know, not grow at all. I'm, I'm just gonna be passively experiencing whatever God's doing, but I'm not important 
in the process. Likewise, we'd be just as lost to come to verse 12 and never see verse 13. Well, I've got to work out my own salvation. I've got to prove it. I've got to show. I've got to show that I'm better than this person or that person. I've got to show that I'm good enough for this or that. And we can get lost. Y'all know we get lost in a lot of side streets and mess when we start trying to prove ourselves or do things by our own strength. I mean, it not only gets a burden, it can get almost ridiculous. I can remember 22 years ago being in Romania and getting a chance to go to a Romanian Eastern Orthodox monastery. I'd never been to a monastery before. I'd read about people like Martin Luther and things like that, but I'd never been. We showed up, sure enough, this guy's wearing this kind of burlap sack type outfit. He's got a beard that, you know, would just, just look like, make Santa Claus jealous, but just jet black. And he began to walk us around and show us what their life was like, that they just labored all the time because, you know, idle hands are the devil's workshop, so they were always gardening or or cleaning or doing all kinds of various work. And their life, in some sense, had become a religious proving ground, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And so if you're really serious about your faith, you know, come in this way. All of a sudden, I noticed there was a guy walking around, and he had a wooden board in his hand, almost like a cutting board, and he was doing this. Some of us thought, well, that's kind of strange, but I guess we can ignore him. All of a sudden, the the guide, one of the monks who was with us says, oh, and do you know what this man is doing? And we said, well, we'd we'd rather not say what we think that might be. Um, You know, has he been out in the sun too long? I, I don't know exactly what's going on. He says, no, he's actually, every day, we each take different turns going around the perimeter. We're not allowed to speak, but we're able to recite the Psalms in our heads and then knock with the syllables against the board. And then he looked at us and he said, can you tell what psalm that is that he is knocking against the board? Well, we wouldn't have been able to tell in English, but we certainly couldn't tell in the Romanian version of the psalms which one it was. But I wondered how much time and how much effort had gone into memorizing the syllables of the psalms knocked against a board as they walked around. We can get lost in all sorts of things if we really believe that ultimately the main character of the story is us. It's not. We can work out because God works in. The phrase that's used here is actually not terribly different than the idiom that we used. If I was to come up to any of you and ask you if you'd worked out this week, you probably would take that to mean, did you exercise this week? Did you go on a walk? Did you lift any weights? Paul, likewise, is using a phrase that has some similarity there to say you're exercising or putting your faith to practice. You say, well, the best I can play is spiritual chopsticks. Well, guess what? God's playing a counter melody over everything you and I do. And it's his counter melody that's heard over whatever we do, but he's called us to contribute. And he said, don't quit, don't stop, keep going. And so for us, when we see that when we're called to work out, to put our faith to practice and to exercise our great hope and strength in that is not ourselves, but it's God who works in, uh, both to, works, but works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we can work out because God works in. Number two, to shine in the darkness. To shine in the darkness. Paul makes this point. In verses 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
John was particularly fond of bringing out this phrasing about, about Jesus being the light of the world and, and ultimately the things that Jesus said about light, John especially recorded in a unique way that resonated with him. But we see that throughout scripture and we see it here from the apostle Paul as well, that we are to be like beacons of light that shine in the darkness. An author named J.K. Laney talked about a solar eclipse that happened in Portland, Oregon some years ago. Uh, some of you remember six years ago when we had a solar eclipse in our area. We were actually really, really close to what they call the point of totality. Uh, we were at something like 95% to where it got really dim, not quite dark, but it was just sort of a strange you know, time outside for about three or four minutes maybe, or maybe a longer stretch where things just sort of got just strange, not quite light, not quite dark. But if you'd gone a little bit farther west, some of you may have, to the point of totality as the moon passed over and as the moon came uh, in between the sun and the earth, you would come to a place of totality where for about three minutes it would be complete darkness. The moon would completely cover uh, the sun and then the, the earth would be, uh, that section of the world would be plunged into complete darkness for just a few minutes. And so J.K. Laney talked about what it was like in Portland, Oregon, a, a major city to experience this some years ago where all of a sudden this city in the middle of the day was plunged into complete darkness. And that's just sort of a sudden and, and wild thing to experience. But she said, even as the city went into complete darkness and people weren't quite sure what to do for that three minutes, all of a sudden all these street lights started coming on all around the city because they had a sense that when it got dark, they were, you know, they, they had something built in them to be able to come on. And so even when things got dark, there were those lights that came on. I think Paul's making a similar statement that in a crooked and twisted generation, uh, in a crooked and twisted world, crooked and twisted time, and it's interesting that sin is spoken about that way in the Bible often. It, we sometimes think of the world as being polar opposite or somehow, you know, being so incredibly different. The reality is whatever is good is taken and bent and twisted just a bit. And that twist and that bent will continue to grow stronger and stronger until it's further and further away from what the Lord has for us. But this crooked and bent generation that we see for us, the calling is to be lights in a world that sometimes finds itself in darkness. And then Paul says how we are to be those lights. I'm sort of moving backwards through what he said. The, the end result is a light. He moves forward. You know, if you're moving forward from there or backward from there, you'd see that he, uh, you know, talks about that light being something that's not crooked and not twisted, but instead points a true light, a, a, a direct light from the Father. And so here's how he says that he's calling on the Philippian church to accomplish that. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, if I was to ask you this morning to make a list, you know, before we started today of what it would mean for you to represent the light of Christ in your life in a dark world, if I was to say what it was going to mean for you to do that, I bet for a lot of us, we'd have been pretty far down the list before we came to grumbling and disputing. Unfortunately, we sometimes don't think of that near the top. We'd come up with personal things, what we ourselves are going to do. I think I talked about last week this, this idea that sometimes we think about our relationship with Jesus as just the vertical, but we don't think of the horizontal with how God's called us to each other. But Paul says, 
You're going to shine as lights in the world, a testimony to a crooked and twisted uh, world, a crooked and twisted generation. You're going to do so by laying aside and doing all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, for these two words, the way they're used here, they have a distinction from one another. As you see this, you might think, well, grumbling and disputing, that's pretty close together. Here's the, uh, the difference from the Greek word into English. This first word for grumbling still holds its meaning pretty clear in English as well, but you know what grumbling is? Grumbling is whispering something that you don't like to one or two people. Grumbling is, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Grumbling is something small that sometimes works its way up, but it starts small. Well, I just said that to one person. Well, I just made that comment to a couple people. Well, I just felt this way and just, you know, before we know it, something's come out of our mouths that it shouldn't. Grumbling is in some ways the, uh, the small way that we would do that. The second word that's given for disputing here in the ESV translation comes from a Greek word where we get our English word dialogue. And so it is a public grumbling. It is a disputing, it is perhaps an arguing, or it is somehow, you know, going after different, different things or people in order for your own causes. And so, whether you're, or whether it's more public, Paul says we're going to show the world the testimony of God's light in us by laying aside, either in a small way or a large way, a lack of unity, a lack of love a lack of concern, a lack of grace. And when we do that, that will be one of the greatest testimonies to the world of who Jesus Christ is. You know, regardless of what your quiet time looks like in the morning, if you're a grumbling person, if you're a disputing person, that testimony to the world is not what it could be. Regardless of how excited you get in worship, regardless of how many notes you take during a sermon, regardless of how dedicated you are in life groups or any other ministry, regardless of your mission work or however long we want to make the list, Paul said our testimony to the rest of the world is how we treat each other, how we treat others, the grace, the kindness that we have towards one another, a testimony to a world that has gone crooked but perhaps might consider another path looking at people who, because of Christ's light in their life, treat one another with love and grace. And so number three, Paul then comes to verse 16 saying, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Number three this morning, hold fast to Jesus. Paul calls us to hold fast to Jesus. I, uh, I think last week I mentioned one of the fascinations that I have that I'll never uh, partake in, which is hang gliding. I think it would be really awesome, but that landing is just what I'm worried about, so I'll watch other people do it. Another fascination that I have is rock climbing. Uh, you might have seen uh, the image before of a guy named Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold has become famous in recent years for what's called free soloing. That is when you go up the side of a mountain, sometimes hundreds of feet tall, with no rope, no parachute, nothing protective at all except a little bag of chalk and your own strength. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not signing up for that. It is incredibly interesting, and it's, it's interesting in so many ways to think what it would be like. I was, I was actually, in thinking through this, just to be totally uh, honest with you, in thinking through all this this week, I actually had a nightmare last night about being a few hundred feet up and thinking, when did I sign up for this? So, 
You know, preaching does strange things to your brain. But, but even thinking about this, you know, holding fast, for someone who's free solo climbing, they have got one hope to sustain them, and that is the rock that they're holding on to. And so if they're going to keep moving, if they're going to stay alive, they had better hold fast to that rock. You know, the Bible uses again and again the illustration of the rock that we find in Christ to be our great hope. So Paul says, if we're going to hold fast to anything, we had better cling, we had better hold for dear life to the Lord Jesus. Now you might say, well, Jonathan, actually it doesn't say Jesus, it says the word of life. Well, you're right, but in actuality, if you'll trace that line of thought, the word of life that we've received is the gospel itself. The word of life, not only the gospel, but the totality of what God's revealed in Scripture. And John tells us in John chapter 1 that the capital W word that was with the Father in the very beginning, the gospel made flesh, his name is Jesus. And so for us to hold fast to the message of what God has given to us finds its destination in the person that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And so we're called to hold fast and to not let go. Paul says, hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. If you look at that today, you might be quick to say, well, Paul, that sounds a little selfish. Paul, what does it have to do with you? Why would you tell them to hold fast to the word of life so that you would not have to feel that you'd done anything in vain? You know, I think the point that the Apostle Paul makes is well put, and I think it's important for us to remember too, our faith and our hope, our, our, our relationship with the Lord Jesus, it's not just vertical. It's not just me and Him. But don't y'all think we owe something to the people who made it possible for us to know Christ at all? Don't you think we're standing on a lot of shoulders this morning of those who have come before us? Don't you think in your life and in your heart, if we want to be real honest, don't you owe something to the people who shared Jesus with you? Amen. Don't you have a blessing in your life from, from how you have come in contact with the gospel? I mean, if you're really honest, don't you say, you know what, if I'm going to walk with Jesus, one of the reasons I want to walk with Jesus is I'm not disappointing those folks who have put their love and effort into my life so that I could know him. And if the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to give that to us, to give us one more reason to walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ, then I think God knew what he was doing. And that's not a guilt trip. That's just a reminder for each one of us. Our faith never involves just us. It involves our kids and involves our parents and involves our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, those we went to school with. It involves that person who put up with you when you were a small kid in Sunday school and children's church. It, it involves that, you know, the long list of people. Don't make them have run in vain. Don't make their effort be in vain. If you need one more reason to hold on to Jesus this morning, hold on to Jesus for the sake of those who have loved you well and spent and given of themselves so that you might know Jesus. Number four, and lastly, Paul would ultimately say this point. Let me go ahead and give you number four this morning. Rejoicing and gladness are an act of the will. Rejoicing and gladness are an act of the will of the will. I, I think if I was to say it as best I could, I probably would say it this way, rejoicing is an act of the will and gladness is a fruit of that obedience. Rejoicing is an action, gladness is a state of being. 
but rejoicing is what drives us towards that gladness. Paul says in verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Paul said, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, what does he mean by that? Well, he writes the same thing to Timothy in 2 Timothy near the end of his life. From the best we can tell, that's the last words that the Apostle Paul wrote was what we call the letter of 2 Timothy. Paul uses that same phrase, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. Now, it was an allusion to what was done in, uh, in, in, in the culture, the, the Old Testament practices, and otherwise an offering that would be poured out, a showing of sacrifice and a, and a giving in that sense. But there was an even greater picture to that or, or a way in which Paul was going to live that out. Without being too graphic this morning, Paul knew that if he was going to lose his life, that was going to be by beheading more than likely from the Roman government. And so he would literally be poured out in this way for the sake of his faith. And so Paul says, I may not live through this. I may be executed. It may be that these words that I give you now will be the last you'll ever get from me. But I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Think about how strange that would be to receive from your relative who had just been given a difficult diagnosis at the doctor's office. What it'd be like to be told that from someone who's about to go through an incredibly difficult circumstance. But I'm glad, so why don't you rejoice with me because I'm rejoicing. We uh, have been dealing with or alluding to, in some sense, the Psalms as well. You know, Parker's Psalm that he read a moment ago, Psalm 34, balances this really well. Another Psalm, you don't have to turn there, it's just one verse this morning. Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 70, verse 4 says this, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. That seeking the Lord leads ultimately to rejoicing. And rejoicing leads to being glad. You know what rejoicing is? Rejoicing is joy out loud. Rejoicing is a choice to let that joy be out loud or to be, be in some sense moving in, in action in our lives. May those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore that God is great. Rejoicing and gladness are an act of the will. That even when we don't feel like it, I've read before or heard somebody say before that the opposite of anxiety is thanksgiving. That in moving through the difficult things that we're worried about, that we face, difficult circumstances, one of the greatest ways that we can battle against that is to begin listing off the things that we're thankful for, taking note of the way that God's been gracious in our heart and life. And I don't know what most of you are going through this morning, but can I just say, if you're able to walk out of here this morning with the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life, we are wealthy people. So with so much else perhaps to weigh us down, this is not a light way to say, put on a fake smile and keep going about your life. That's not you know, meaningful in the life of a Christian. But it is to say in your darkest hour and the most difficult things that you walk through, if you will choose to focus on the joy that you have in Christ, God will bring you in that through to a place that you wouldn't under otherwise understand. A peace that passes understanding, a gift from the Lord. 
Some of you have known what that's like to receive that in a way that didn't make any sense with what you were going through. And sometimes it's a gift from the Lord despite our wrong attitudes. But if we'll take joy in who God is and what Jesus has done through him, uh, we can find a, a great hope. Uh, my Uncle Craig, I'm going to have to give him credit for this. He had posted this a little bit ago, something by uh, Charles Swindoll, one of Ken Amburn's good friends. And uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read something that I saw, I remember on a bulletin board wall 25 years ago that uh, Charles Swindoll said, and it says this, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearances, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for the day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitude. For us as well, it is a choice for whether or not to rejoice. It is a choice for whether to focus on what God has done in our hearts and lives. And Paul calls the people of God at the church of Philippi to remember that even on the heels of his possible life ending and being taken from them. And so if that was the Apostle Paul's circumstances and he could say that, I think for each of us today as well, we could say, Lord, will you help me to rejoice? Will you help me to be glad? In the Discipleship Journal some years ago, a lady named Jean Fleming writes about an experience that she had in church one day. She was uh, listening to the pastor when all of a sudden he brought a little, uh, a young boy, elementary age boy up who had just uh, trusted in Christ for salvation. He had put his faith in Jesus and the pastor wanted to share that with the church. And the church listened faithfully and nodded along and smiled, you know, just as we often do. All of a sudden there was a little preschool boy who was friends uh, with this, this young man. His name, uh, the, the young man's name who had, who had gotten saved was named Crockett. This little preschool boy was so excited when he heard that Crockett had placed faith in Jesus that he immediately stood up on his pew, put his fist in the air, and said, yeah, Crockett! This is what Gene writes about that moment. The little boy's response was totally unselfconscious. His joy and exuberance exhilarated and rebuked me. His mother had him sitting again in a second. Too bad. The entire congregation should have been standing on the pews. Where's your rejoicing this morning? Where's your joy? Are you willing to see that it's God who works in and through you to will and to work for his good pleasure? Are you willing to shine like a light in a dark world for the sake of Christ and what he's done and the sake of what others have done on your behalf so that you would know him? Are you willing to rejoice and to be glad? One of the fathers of modern missions, when those names are listed off, is a guy named William Carey. William Carey was a missionary to India many years ago. And William Carey worked in a time where even a printing press was a great 
you know, extravagant gift to be able to have, and he was trying to translate the Bible into a number of languages that the Indian people spoke on the Indian subcontinent. I think even today there are something like 19 major languages uh, that are there. And so as he began to translate the Bible into some, several of those languages, he had worked long and tireless hours with a team of people. A, a printing press had been given to them, and so they had finally completed, uh, I believe it was the entire Bible at that time, in one of the languages and were working and it made really strong headway towards another one. William Carey was gone one day, and when he came home, he found out there had been a fire, and it had burned and destroyed every single piece of work that he had done on that Bible. Every page, the printing press, all the work, it was up in smoke. There was no cloud backup. There was no second copy. There was nothing except completely starting over. One witness said they saw what it looked like when William Carey came to that place and he looked at the smoldering wreckage of what was left behind and he began to pray. And someone who was standing nearby said that as they heard the words come from William Carey's mouth, this is what he prayed. Father, thank you that you've given me the health and strength to do all of this one more time. And he started over. One missions company uh, agency records what happened later. Little, little did Carrie know that the fire would bring him and his work to the attention of people all over Europe and America as well as India. In just 50 days in England and Scotland alone, about 10,000 pounds were raised for rebuilding Carrie's published enterprise. Uh, so much money was coming in that Andrew Fuller, Carrie's friend and leader of his mission in England, told his committee when he uh, returned from a fundraising trip, we must stop the contributions. <laughs> Many volunteers came to India to help as well, and by 1832, Carrie's rebuilt and expanded printing operation had published complete Bibles or portions of the Bibles in 44 languages and dialects. So in the chopsticks of your and my life, would you realize there's a greater counter melody? Would you realize there's a father who in the lives of his children works in and through so that they can work out? Will you choose joy? Will you move towards gladness? And will you remember the Lord Jesus? Let's pray together. Won't you stand even as we close today? Lord, thank you for the power and the work of Jesus Christ. In our hearts and in our lives, would you allow us and teach us and draw us to putting our faith to work, but working not in our own strength, but in where you would lead us. So Lord, however we would need joy and gladness today, However, we would need to put aside grumbling or dispute. However, we would need to shine in the dark. Or however, we would need to simply hold fast to Jesus for the sake not only of ourselves, but for those who have come before and are with us now. Lord, would you help us? Father, if there's anybody here today who's been trying either in their own strength or through no means at all to go their own way and they need the finished work and the saving of Jesus Christ in their heart and life Lord would you call them to yourself today would they believe and trust put their hand in yours Father however you'd use your word in our hearts today we just come to you now and thank you in Jesus name Amen